Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have you ever woken up to a flat tire waiting for you in the driveway and asked, God, what did I do to deserve this? Yeah, me too. This past week at The Gathering, we explored the kind of relationship God has with his creation and wondered together. If love matters most, why doesn't it feel that way? The band played songs by Coldplay, Lady Gaga, Joel Houston, and more. Let's have a listen.
us back against the San Francisco traffic On the bridge's side, the faces towards the jail It's a little bit of everything 
from our friend Ellen. What a great song that was. Um, it's good to be together today. Um, do y'all remember snow days? Like, not, not this past weeks, but like as a middle schooler, like you were old enough to be smarter than the weathermen. Right around bedtime, you'd switch from Boy Meets World to the Weather Channel to see if there are any tea leaves to read. And then, and then you'd turn the pajamas inside out. You'd flush the ice down the toilet. You'd kneel at the end of the, your bed to pray, like you did every night, right? And you'd be like, God, or if you were desperate, dear Heavenly Father. And then you'd begin the negotiations, right? If you just do this one thing for me, I promise I'll never think of Topanga again, right? Like, and now, as a parent, I kneel at the end of the bed, and I'm like, Dear Heavenly Father of creation, both seen and unseen, Lord, let there be school, right? Uh, do you know between December 22nd and January 22nd, there's only seven days of school? Like it's living with wild thornberries. Like, what is going on? I, when that text message woke me up on Tuesday morning from the school, and then the subsequent email, and then the phone call, was to, like, drive home the point, I laid there for a long time. Just like going through it all, auditing my life, like, what did I do to deserve this, you know? <laughs> you know, despite its flaws, this month has actually been, uh, it's been really, really, it's a really special month to me. Uh, January 2024 marks the 10th anniversary of my first talk here at a gathering, which is, yeah, thank you. Um, it's, it's, 10 years is a long time. Like, think about how different the world was 10 years ago, we changed skin, like every cell in our body changes over seven years, right? So I'm like one and a half new persons since then. And so are you, that's the wild part. So for those who've been going to gatherings for a, a long time, get this, that first talk in January of 2014, it was in the student center. You guys remember the student center? That doesn't feel like it was 10 years ago. I found that talk, I found that talk a couple weeks back, I read through it and what were y'all thinking? I was 24 years old. I had no right being up here, being responsible for something this precious, right? Like, I mean, for the, the announcements that morning, my Young Life friends, Kelsey Nimps and Maddie Williams, they came up to do the announcements and they roasted me for about four minutes about how I played World of Warcraft, which I still would do if I had a computer strong enough, but that's not the point. 
I was not at the maturity level of which I should have been up here and been responsible for that. You might as well give him both a microphone, which could be fun. We should try that sometime. Ten years is a long time. I spent a lot of uh, energy this month reflecting on uh, so many moments, so many relationships and experiences that we've celebrated together. I think of, of moments, too, where it's been really, really, really hard and where there's been pain and discomfort and awkwardness. I think of all the people that I've disappointed and yet the grace that I continue to be shown despite it. I think of all the ways that this gathering has come around Allie and I through so much through injury and adoptions and medical traumas and just life and being there for it. And on Thursday night, I was lying in bed. My mind was stirring with all these ideas for this talk and just thinking about these moments and the experiences. And I just thought to myself, like, what did I do to deserve this? So thank you. It's a beautiful thing to be a misfit toy and yet feel like there's a place where even this weirdo can belong. And that's, that's your guys' fault. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. <laughs> that morning 10 years ago, that, that talk, let's just say we all should be grateful that it is not available in podcast or video form, right? That is a true gift to all of us that has been lost to the archives. But in reading that talk, the central idea was co coincidentally built around this clip from the movie Perks of Being a Wallflower. So we'll check it out. Wow. That was fast. You want another one? Yeah. All right. Mr. Anderson? Can I ask you something? Yeah. Why do nice people choose the wrong people to date? Hmm. Are we talking about anyone specific? Uh -huh. We accept the love we think we deserve. Can we make them know that they deserve more? We can try. strongly the perks of being a wallflower um, and perhaps you remember more recent talks where I've used this clip and clips from that movie um, and, but really really that talk 10 years ago was around this idea we accept the love we think we deserve which I believe is true I think that sentiment is not only this beautiful line from this beautiful movie in this beautiful book but I think it is an, an incredibly beautiful concise articulation of our role in the gospel and what our relationship with God can be. So in the spirit of a dad rock cover band, I want to turn my hat backwards and pretend like I'm 24 again, if that's okay. Because um, like a, a, coincidentally, we've been working through this series of talks called Love Matters Most, and I think this fits really nicely into it. Now, I'm not going to do that same talk. I'm going to do something a little bit different, but we're going we're gonna to talk about this same idea, um, put some new paint on it, and specifically dial in on this question that this sentiment asks, which is, what do we deserve? And we're going to do that with some good, old-fashioned study of ancient Sumerian anthropology. Which, yes, yeah, there we go. We got one fan over here. That's right. He's got his notebook out, ready to take some notes. That is, after all, what you came for, right? Some anthropology here on Sunday morning. I, I promise it'll be quick. 
kind of, and mostly painless. So anyway, let's dive in. Mostly, that's right. There's this incredibly bizarre story in the book of Genesis about a man named Abraham and his son Isaac. Um, And really, we just need to read it, uh, and then we can dive in. God said, Abraham, yes, answered Abraham, I'm listening. He said, take your dear son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll point out to you. Abraham got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young servants and his son Isaac. He had split wood for the burnt offering, and he set out for the place God had directed him. On the third day, he looked up and saw the place in the distance. Abraham told his two young servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going to go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and gave it to his son Isaac to carry. And then he, grabbed the, then he carried the flint and the knife. The two of them went off together. Isaac said, Ab- Isaac said to Abraham, Father, yes, son, we have the flint and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, Son, God will see to it that there's a sheep for the burnt offering. And they kept on walking together. Can you imagine being a child therapist in ancient Samaria? Like, you'd be busy. Um, this story is in the Bible. This story of a man climbing a mountain to sacrifice his only son is in our holy book. It's a wild, wild story, one beyond anything that we could imagine doing or believing in today. But to understand why this story matters, not only to the first people who would have heard it, but to us, we have to go way, 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 way back. Like back in time, further than 10 years, further than 100 years, further than 1,000 years, all the way back to the dawn of consciousness, to the first moments of life coming alive. So we're going to go so far back that we're going we're to pass any kind of concepts of science or philosophy or time or math to a place where there's no calendars or clocks or tools. We're going to go that far back, all the way to a cave in ancient Iran. And in this cave, a small group of nomadic cave people have made their dwelling there for now. And one day out of this cave steps a cave woman. We'll call her Belizgama, you know, a traditional cave person name. And Belizgama wanders out of the cave one day to find something coming out of the ground. She's wandered here before, but is just noticing this something for the very first time. And then over, over the course of whatever time was before there was time, she notices that this plant gets bigger and taller. And one day, these, this plant has these bright, colorful orbs that are coming from it. And they smell sweet. And somehow, Belizgama knows that she wants to eat them. And then she notices that when she eats them, they make, there's this... There's a sweetness that makes everything seem a little bit brighter. Her mind is illuminated with creativity, and she has this energy that only this orb can bring her. And then she notices something else, that there's other plants just like this plant all over, some with the same orbs, and then other plants with different orbs that have different colors and different shapes. And then she begins to realize that there are these elements happening that affect how these things coming out of the ground act and it affects how the orbs taste and how big they grow or how small they grow 
For instance, there's this big ball of light in the sky that moves from one end of all that she can see all the way over to the under, other end of all she can see. And then some time passes where you can't see it, and then it comes back again. And she notices that, that this ball of light not only allows her to see and make sense of everything around her, but it also keeps her warm. It keeps her comfortable. And then she notices that this warmth has an effect on these things coming from the ground and the orbs that these things are making. If it's too warm, then the plant shrivels and, it's die, and it dies. And if the ball of light doesn't produce enough warmth, then it as well shrivels and dies. And then every once in a while, get this, this is wild. Can you imagine? Every once in a while, this water falls from the sky. And the plants seem to really, really like this water as much as Belizgama does. But if there's too much water, then this, this plant washes away. And if there isn't enough, then it shrivels and it dies. So Belizgama realizing she is beginning to realize that she has no control over these elements, yet is entirely dependent on them. And so she begins collecting and storing these orbs in case it gets too warm or too wet or not enough of either. She then wanders down a little further from her cave and she finds this other group where this strapping young Neanderthal of a man named Gork and his band of brothers resides. And Gork would sit around the fire at night and he would tell these great stories of chasing the beasts through the wilderness. You see, Gork, he was the leader of this small group that they would hunt for the food. And sometimes they would come back really, really quickly, like within a few hours, and they would have more than what they needed. But sometimes, so many passes of the ball would happen in the sky, and yet they would come back empty-handed. And, and in those stories of the hunt that Gork would tell, Belizgama began to notice that there was a spirit of the beast that could not be controlled this force that somehow made the beast's survival a competition between these two things, totally reliant on the beast to live, yet completely out of their control. And then another realization, that there's, a, that there's this other element, there's this other force happening in the world that makes living possible. There's this in and out life force that without it, there was no more you. There was no shape or substance to the force, just a, an in and an out. And if too many passes of the great ball in the sky went without enough orbs or enough beasts, then life would stop working. And so dependency on these elements, on these forces, they took hold and they took shape. And each group of Gorks and Belizgamas would have their own unique relationship with these life forces. They would give them names and shapes and personalities. They would craft objects in their likeness and carry them with them as they traveled, hoping that these forces would be on their side, that they would work in their favor. And over time, as these groups grew in bigger, they grew into tribes, right? It was no longer just one family, but multiple families living in community, sharing their orbs and their beasts, protecting one another and preserving life together. Now, over time, they learned how to manipulate these forces, right? Oh, this plant, it has seeds in it. And we can plant those seeds in the ground, and with enough warmth and enough water falling from the sky, it'll grow right here where we put it. 
And so now instead of traveling from cave to cave, these tribes would settle in one space permanently and they would choose to make their homes in regions that they felt these forces the strongest. And if there was already another group in that space, then they would call upon these forces to be on their side so that they could be victorious and capture the land of their God. They learned that, that only those who had the gods on their side would survive. And so they would do whatever it takes to appease the gods. They would get gifts of an offering, a portion of what they had. They'd build altars in honor of these gods. And then they, and they would bring the best of their crop to burn so that the aroma would rise into the sky and please the forces up above, or that the blood of the animal that they, that they offered would soak into the ground to appease the forces of the ground. And all over the world, tribes would name these gods differently and yet model the same dependency on their relationship to them. Altars became the center of society as the need to appease these gods became a way of life. Experts of the gods became gatekeepers of these altars, right? Rules and laws began to form for how to manipulate the gods and provide for them to be in your favor. Oh, you need to grow crops over here? Yeah, this god, he takes care of that. Just make sure you take your best grain, offer it at the altar there, and you'll be fine. Oh, you're, you're struggling to have kids down south? Okay, great. Offer this many sheep to this god, and they should take care of you. You kind of see how this dependency can get out of hand. It develops in this need to provide for these gods to keep them happy. It, it, it escalates and snowballs down the mountain really, really quickly. Because what happens if you have a great year? Say you're a farmer growing so soybeans and you just have a, a tremendous year. Do you go to the altar and do you, do you sacrifice three times as much as you did the year before? What if, the, what if the next year there's a disease that comes over your entire flock and you have nothing to offer, right? Are you supposed to offer more or are you supposed to offer less to appease that God? It's a terrible cyclical cycle, right? What happens if multiple years go by and there's a famine that takes gold? Is grain enough to sacrifice? Could there be something more that God wants? There are records of ancient Babylonian prophets cutting their arms all the way down as a form of worship to their God. In one region just south of the region known as, or the, the town we now know as Jerusalem, there was a tribe who worshipped the god Moloch. And they made it their practice to sacrifice their firstborn child to gain favor and prosperity with their God. How powerful a piece of fruit can be, right? So let's zoom in now to the small region along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea where a tribe known as the Sumerians have settled. And in this region, the chief, there is a chief deity, a chief god, who's named Anu. And Anu was believed to be the god of the heavens. Anu is the chief deity. This blew my mind, y'all. It's still blowing my mind. Anu is the chief deity of Samaria, and he's part of a triad, or a trinity of gods, along with his son, Enlil, and the spirit god, Enki, who is the spirit presiding under the ground, making all of the forces come together. 
Just let that soak in for a second. I just think it's so cool and so interesting, y'all. Anyways, we're zooming in on this guy named Abraham, right? He's a native Sumerian, worshiper of Anu. And he and his wife, Sarah, are growing older and have yet to have any children, which is a huge deal. Children in the ancient day, they were one's most valuable asset. Children were how your tribe lived on into eternity. The more children you had, the more likely your family was to prosper. They were your labor. They were your name. They were your culture and your tradition. They were your abundance. Without kids, your tribe died. And with it, your gods. Kids were everything. But Abraham and Sarah are unable to have kids until one day God visits Abraham. But this God who visits Abraham, this isn't Anu. This isn't Enlil. This isn't Moloch. This is a God called Yahweh. A name that in English means breath, the in and the out, that is life. And Yahweh, this God called breath, he interacts with Abraham. And this should blow us all away. This does not happen. The gods do not engage. That's not how the arrangements are set up. We interact with God. God does not interact with us, except for this God. This God named Breath, he comes to have a conversation with a man who's looking at a life without a future. And so Breath comes to Abraham and he says this. He says, leave your country, your family, and your father's home for a land that I will show you. What's he saying? The old Abe here. His country, his land was everything. His father's house was the only order of life that he'd ever known. Life operated under a certain set of exchanges that if executed in just the proper way, it would lead to an eternal prosperity. And yet this God was asking this man to leave it all behind. Later, God would say to Abraham, I will make you a father of fathers. I'll make, you, I'll make nations from you. Kings will issue from you. I'm establishing my covenant between me and you. A covenant that includes your descendants. A covenant that goes on and on. A covenant that commits me to be your God and the God of your descendants. Y'all don't miss this. This is not a covenant that Abraham is making with God. This is a covenant that God is making with Abraham. The, flip has, the script has been entirely flipped over. Everything that Abraham has ever known about the world is about to change. Yahweh says this, You will be the father of all nations and your children will outnumber the stars. I wonder what Abraham thought he deserved. He's 99 years old. His wife is barren. His future is lost until this unprecedented visit. This moment from a God called breath. God delivers on his promise, right? And Sarah gives birth to a son who they name Isaac, which in English, Isaac means laughter. And what is laughter? It's breathing at its best, right? It's joyful, joyful breath. And it's right here that we find Abraham and his son laughter on the top of a mountain in Moriah. Dad? Yeah, son? Are we going to build a fire? Yeah, son. We are. But what are we going to burn? I don't know. We'll figure it out. God will figure it out. Can you imagine what he must have been thinking in that moment? 
what must have been going through his, sen, his, his head as he was escorting his son to the altar? If we go back to the story, we notice that Abraham doesn't question God. God tells him to sacrifice his only son, and without question, he packs up the family donkey, grabs his knife, and the next morning they leave to do it. But this was just the way things worked. If the gods demanded, then the gods will have. But remember, this God is different. This is the God that tells Abraham to leave his father's house. The old way is gone. There is a new way to do things. From here on out, things are going to be different. So this doesn't make any sense. The cognitive dissonance that Abraham must have had as he was walking up that mountain, I can't imagine it was a very, there was a whole lot of talking going on between Isaac and Abraham. He wants to be obedient. He wants to please this God because he wants to live, right? His life depends on the breath of life being in his favor. So they get there. Abraham builds the altar of stones. He lays the wood on top of it and he ties his son. And the Bible says that he goes as far as taking out the knife. Can you imagine how desperate Abraham must have been to have life go his way if this is how far he was willing to go? 99 years old, his only son, his only future, and, the, and he hears God ask him to sacrifice it all. And the Bible says that another voice calls out to him in that moment. Just then an angel of God called out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, yes, I'm listening. Don't lay a hand on that boy. Don't touch him. Now I know how fearlessly you fear God. You didn't hesitate to place your son, your dear son, on the altar for me. Abraham looked up. He saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And Abraham took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. That is a wild story. And it's so easy to look at it with skepticism. Like, where was the God of CPS when you needed him? Right? I grew up hearing this story from my children's pastors and my youth group leaders, and, and the concluding message was always the same. This was a God who provides. Which is not a wrong interpretation of the story. In fact, it's a very good one. It's the primary point of the story. This, is the, this God, in fact, does provide for Abraham. But if we take just a step backwards and view this story, this moment in the greater arc of history, it's not that simple. This story is so much bigger than just that. This is about a God who provides when no other God was providing. This wasn't one of the gods that provided. This was the God. This was a revolutionary God, a God who had an entirely different plan for humanity. And from here on out, there would be a whole new way of living in the world because no longer would this be a God who requires. This would not be a God to appease, but a God who provides. This was not an incomplete God who needed shape and personality, but a God who was willing to be known and a God who had a solution.
Thanks, y'all. All right. That was a lot of fun, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's keep going. We're, we're going to fast forward. Come on, work for me. Oh, it wasn't on. There we go. We're going to fast forward about 4,000 years into this same patch of land along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Except now, instead of calling it Samaria, we're going to call it Jerusalem. And where there once caves and wilderness, there are markets and streets and taxes and politics and tribes that have become empires and altars that have become temples. And just north of the town of Jerusalem is a sleepy little town of Nazareth where another man named Joseph is faced with the future that he didn't ask for. His fiancée is pregnant, and it's not his. He's lost, and he doesn't know what to do next. Can you imagine how much stress he must have been under? How desperate Joseph must have felt here, right? Here's this migrant worker from Bethlehem who's been forced out of his home by Roman occupation and sent to the ruins of Nazareth to try to rebuild what the Romans destroyed. And just as things are starting to look up, right? He finds a partner to settle down with and try to start over. And maybe one day they could afford a piece of land and he could finally start to dream again. But then she winds up pregnant. And as far as he knows, the baby isn't his. And now he's got to figure out a way to not only save his reputation, but doing it without ruining her life. This is not the poker hand that you would have wanted to draw in first century Samaria. That is, until he gets visited from a divine voice. And again, this voice makes a promise. He's, he's coming to save him. And not just him, but the entire world. This baby, the one that isn't his, the one that isn't part of the plan, his biggest point of stress and fear and pain and struggle, that baby is going to save the entire world. Joseph, can't you see that everything you've ever known about how the world works is about to change? Are you up for it? Are you ready? Okay, we're getting into the deep weeds here. But trust me, the only way out is through. Think about it this way. God's son leaves his father's house to come to earth. He comes to us. But not only does he come down to us, this God now takes on our form. Right? Instead of demanding that we craft images in his likeness, he takes on our likeness. He takes on our shape and our form. He puts on our skin and experiences the same limit that he is so desperately trying to save us from. There's no long, this is no longer about us climbing the mountain for God, but about him coming down to us. And it's in the life of this God made flesh, named Jesus, that we learn what it is that God thinks we deserve. Jesus has become a man and he's traveling around. He's healing and feeding and bringing hope to people who've been extorted by 4,000 years of these over-regulated arrangements to appease the forces that are completely out of their control. And so Jesus, this God-made flesh, he's seeking out those on the underbelly of society, right? The blind, the widowed, the uncleaned. He's reaching out to the misfits and the outcasts and he's giving them purpose, saying, you too belong in my kingdom. And when he's pushed on this, right? When he's asked about this, like, God, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, why would you care so much about those whose future can offer nothing of substance to the order of the world? Jesus, why do you care so much? You know what he says? I've come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
That's what it's all about. Life and life abundantly. It's not just survival, but a thriving and vibrant life. It's this desire, it's this motive that connects you and I to the Belizgamas and the Gorks and the Abrahams and the Sarahs and the Josephs and the Marys. All of us want the same thing. All of us want and all of us are looking for and we don't and we're trying to figure out what we need to do in order to get it. But this isn't about what we want. It's about what we're willing to accept. And we accept the love we think we deserve. The old way of thinking leaves us wondering what we deserve. Our sacrifice would determine our deserving. But Jesus flips the narrative. He turns over the tables and says, no, you've got it all wrong. You deserve life and life abundantly. Why else do you think I'm here? You see, this is the starting line. It's not the destination. The destination the de- excuse me, the deserving of all of this is completely out of our hands. Instead of God asking for our son, he gives his own. The deserving is finished. The question is no longer what do you deserve, but what do you think about what you deserve? And are you willing to accept it? And believe it or not, that's the hard part. It's not the believing, although that comes with its own set of difficulties. No, the hardest part in all of this is the acceptance, because how do you, how do you accept it? Do you just declare it? Like, I accept it. Right? And I wish, I wish I had a clean answer to that. In some spaces, it looks like a prayer with a certain set, with a cer- certain set of words and phrases. For some, it means a ceremonial bath. And for some, it requires some bread and wine. And in many cases, a combination of all three. And I, those are incredibly valuable sacraments and practices and traditions to the life of faith. And they play an incredibly important role. But acceptance cannot and should not be isolated to just those moments. Acceptance is a surrender. And a consequential re-surrender. It's an ongoing embodiment of the central idea that we cannot control and manipulate the forces of this world. Y'all, we are not in control and nor do we have to be. One author puts it this way, when you cling to some idea of how you think it has to go and it doesn't go that way, that's when you suffer. And you did that to yourself. And when you let go of those ideas and stop clinging and you let it be what it is, Well, that's where the joy is. To accept the love we think we deserve, we first have to stop clinging to the God of expectations. We have to let go of the way that we think life is supposed to go and to surrender to the joy that God has for us.
Ten years is a long time, and when I gave that talk now a decade ago, I would have never guessed that it would become an anniversary. But I need to confess something. I feel like sometimes I, I stand up here and I get to give these talks, which in many ways is what I've always wanted, right? An audience. But I don't have this all figured out. I spend so much time and energy thinking about these ideas. They're invasive and they're pervasive. And this opportunity always comes with a temptation to make you believe that I've got it all figured out. And I absolutely do not. God has a seating chart. And I am in the front row for a reason. I fail to accept this constantly. And right now it feels like an hourly basis. This is my, this is my daughter, Quinn. Yeah. She'll be eight months old this week. Um, we got a call on, on a Tuesday, and we were at the hospital 18 hours later. Uh, and since then, our lives, um, and she, she's been in it ever since. She's totally flipped our lives upside down, flipped the script in any way, in the most beautiful ways we could have ever imagined. But here's the confession. I was not ready for this. I... I was happy with how it was. I was comfortable with how it was. I knew how life worked and what to expect. I was content. And then this happens, right? The most beautiful little swamp monster has taken over our lives. Literally, look how messy she is. Look at all that. It's taken me most of the last eight months to accept that. Yet, there's this song that my brother sent me back in the early fall, uh, and it's been on repeat in my ears ever since, and we can't play it this morning, or ever. Um, <laughs> too many naughty words. Uh, but the last verse of that song, it, it reads like this. I wanna be a real man. I wanna be a father. I'm so tired of thinking about me, man. I think I need to worry about a daughter. And I'll talk to God through her eyes. Please don't make fun of me. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. For me right now, accepting the love that God has for me means repeating those lines over and over and over again. Call it a prayer. Call it a mantra. I'll talk to God through her eyes. For me, acceptance means I get to show her every day what kind of love she deserves, and I'm going to fail. I failed today, I failed yesterday, I'm going to fail tomorrow. But that, for me, is what acceptance looks like right now. And friends, I'm not sure what I did to deserve that. Will you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, may we see your face. May it shine upon us. May we feel the blessing of your provision. God, may we see the rams in our thicket all over. Lord, and may we ourselves embody that ram as a provision for those around us. Lord, may we show and model the love that we believe that we deserve. And may we talk to you through the eyes of those that you've put into our lives. To those that you've said, show them how much I love them. Lord, you give such good gifts to your kids, and this is one of them. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, have a wonderful Sunday. Go Lions.
Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.